Sydney Environment Institute presents the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference Keynote Conversation for EJ and Climate Governance with Chair Rosemary Lister and speakers Chuck Sokorecki and John Barnett. Good afternoon, everybody. I think that we've had some wonderful conversations and certainly the sessions which I've attended today have also been very, very stimulating. My name's Rosemary Lister. I'm the Professor of Climate and Environmental Law at Sydney Law School. And I would also like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land upon which the University of Sydney is built. And I pay my respects to their elders, both, both past and present. But I would also like us just to think about the many, many conversations that go on and have gone on amongst uh, the traditional owners of the land about the very issues that we are discussing, uh, environmental management and, and so on. So just to quickly go back, um, Robin, to your point, is that in 2013 I actually wrote um, uh, an article on establishing a climate disaster response fund under the Warsaw Mechanism, and that's how Maxine and I met, because I published that on SSRN, and Maxine emailed me and said, wow, we're sort of working in the same sort of areas, let's meet. So, um, and that was published in Transnational Environmental Law Review, if anyone wants to read it in 2015. Okay, so um, first speaker this afternoon is Dr. Chucks Okariki, who's an associate professor in environment and development at the Department of Geography and Environmental Science at the University of Reading. He's also the co-director of the University of Reading's um, Leverhelm's uh, doctoral training program on climate ethics and justice. He also is a, a visiting fellow at the Smith School and Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute. Chucks was a lead author on the IPCC AR5 assessment report on equity and sustainable development. So I now welcome Chucks to the podium. Thank you very much, David, for the invitation. It's a, very, uh, a real privilege and honor to be here. Um, I'm framing my talk around exploring what is the implication of the increasing polycentric climate governance, uh, especially in the context of the Paris Agreement. So one of the key uh, features of the climate issue is that the center of the governance of the issue, although very much located within the UNFCCC framework, uh, is scattered all over the place. And so authors have been talking about uh, the increasing polycentrism or fragmentation of the architecture of global governance. And what we see is that uh, there is much more involvement of uh, private sectors, of uh, transnational collaborative initiatives, but also of multilateral and bilateral and subnatural uh, 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 domains of governance that are related to climate change. Uh, I'm going to 
look a bit backwards before I look uh, forward. So there are three key point connections between climate and justice. And these three key connections lies in three asymmetries. Number one is asymmetry in contribution. The second is asymmetry in impact. And the third is asymmetry in the power to decide. First, in terms of asymmetry in contribution, we know that just about 20%, uh, well, the 20 largest economies in the world are responsible for about 82% of global uh, carbon stock. We know that the EU and the US uh, that comprise about 10% of the global population are responsible for about 24% of global emission. Whereas Africa, which is home to about 20% of the global population, is responsible for only 3% of the global uh, emission. So the fundamental question here is about asymmetry in contribution. The second is, oh, by the way, I just put this... Uh, this slide to show that what obtains in the realm of climate change actually is also mirrored right across the general resource consumption in the world. So this same 20% of the global population uh, is responsible for roughly 80% of the, the consumption of other global resources, whether you're talking about forest, wood, uh, precious metals, cement, etc., uh, etc., so um, this slide shows that if the whole world is uh, to consume as much energy as we do in the United Nations, uh, sorry, the United, States, uh, United Kingdom, we will need about eight uh, or so planets. Surely we have only one planet, and so we really need to uh, discuss justice around this issue of uh, consumption. The second is asymmetry in impact, which... Uh, Robin already alluded to. The fundamental challenge here being that those who are contributing the least to the problem are the ones that are bearing the biggest brunt. This raises a distinctive moral uh, dilemma that the rich uh, are imposing their risks on the poor. And what we see is that the most vulnerable, uh, the 10 most vulnerable countries in the world to climate change are all countries that are, have contributed very, very little to the problem. But also that this is really very much an existential, uh, an existential problem, uh, as we've been hearing in the context of climate refugees and climate displacement. What this graph, however, shows is that there's almost a perfect correlation between uh, GDP and vulnerability. And this graph is really important because I think it's one powerful way of framing the conundrum or the dilemma that we have. On the one hand, countries feel that they need to grow their economy in order to strengthen uh, their resilience against climate change. On the other hand, doing more growth leads to more carbon emission, which leads to climate change. And then the third asymmetry has to do with asymmetry in ability to decide or participation. And what we have is that these developing countries who have contributed the least to climate change, uh, who are bearing the greatest uh, impact of climate change, are also the ones that have the least voice in the climate change negotiation arena. 
Now, this raises a distinctive possibility that those who have actually contributed the greatest to the problem can design policies that exacerbate the issue. And what uh, this graph shows you is just comparing the number of people or uh, delegates that come to COP meetings at the annual climate change meetings. And you can see, for example, uh, Germany, roughly 80 million people, uh, with Ethiopia, roughly 80 million people. Uh, 2,000, 75 to 5, 56 to 3, 62 to 0, 101 to 2. And this does not include the German um, negotiators that are part of the EU. And so when you have just two people from Ethiopia trying to run around all the places to negotiate what is a very difficult and complex regime, you can imagine uh, how uh, John Dreisex would talk about the democratic deficit of this problem. So I'm not quite sure what Robin was saying about climate justice not having penetration and impact on the climate regime. Uh, if that's what you say, Robin, I would like to kindly disagree. It's a very risky thing to disagree with Robin. But, <laughs> but you know, in his opening remark, Dave was talking about Hugo Grotius and how uh, his professors was acting, uh, uh, trying to get him to do real IR. One of, one of the fundamental theories of IR is that moral contestations are beyond the pale of international politics, I mean mainstream regime theory. But one of the things that, I, that gratifies my heart, well, up until recently, is actually we have proven beyond all reasonable doubt that international politics is not beyond the pale of morality. And that cl climate change is a potent example for anyone who wants to make that case. We see, for example, uh, a lot of provisions of, uh, about climate change in the existing regime. Uh, and the first thing, really, is that it was equity concerns that moved global climate negotiations into the UNFCCC arena. Developed countries wanted to negotiate a much more narrow protocol, uh, but it was developing countries that said, no, this has to go into the UNFCCC domain. And that quote from the uh, Indian uh, negotiator captures the sentiment of much of the developing country world. The idea was that negotiating climate change within the UN allows uh, for these big structural questions to be had because climate change was seen as one area to get into bigger discussions about how to redistribute wealth globally. Second quote from uh, a negotiator in Pakistan makes the point that they felt, developing countries, that was, that having this negotiation within the UN allows all countries to have a fairer ability to make their point. We also see uh, contestations of equity really shaping the article of the regime itself. There was a lot of debate about having just the uh, objective of the uh, regime around uh, greenhouse gas emission. But developing countries were able to broaden the objective for, the, uh, for good or for bad to include ecosystem management, food security, and broader economic uh, development. And then, when you talk about the moral norms actually in the regime, there's quite a lot, including the admission 
that the regime is going to be negotiated on the basis of equity and common but uh, differential responsibility principle. There are other uh, important norms like precautionary principle, uh, per capita emission, a historic responsibility, and this admission that there will be new additional money flowing from developing co developed countries to developing countries. And critically, that the uh, commitment of uh, developing countries depends very much on developed countries providing uh, new additional money and also taking leadership. So now we've moved to a much more polycentric uh, bottom-up, for the want, lack of, for the want of better word to describe it, but I do agree with uh, Robin that that is a, a bit mischaracterization. But we've moved to a much more polycentric climate governance, and so what really does this uh, mean for issues of justice and equity? And I think there are at least four points to be made. Number one, the issue of effectiveness. It has already been mentioned by Maxine that the total uh, pledges uh, fall far short of what scientists have suggested needs to happen in order to be on the pathway to uh, 1.5, uh, uh, to two degrees, let alone 1.5. So there is this admission, of course, of sustainability, uh, mother earth, human rights, and even some people will celebrate the inclusion of the 1.5 as a triumph for equity. But we do know that uh, it, the totality of all the emission contribution fall far, far what is expected. And analysis have shown actually that this uh, ambition gap very much represents a fair or equity gap in the regime. So what happens if, as we have moved now to this kind of more pledge and review system, nations are unable to meet their responsibility or the pledges are generally fall short of what is expected? What will happen is more climate change, and more climate change means more uh, uh, impact, more displacement, more refugee. So we have the problem of effectiveness. The second, is the norm structure, which I think is quite important. Words do matter uh, in international regime. And what we have is a diminution of this notion of uh, common but differential responsibility. So as many of you will know, there are three key ways of actioning equity within the regime. One is burden sharing, which the, most, the best example is the, the quantified emission reduction obligation for the uh, developed countries and the uh, lack of quantified emission reduction for the developing country. Uh, the second one is litigation, which is basically problematic as we now have been hearing this morning. And then the third one is low carbon development. And really what Paris has done is to diminish uh, burden sharing and diminished litigation, and now moved all the eggs more or less into the basket of green growth. Uh, but that raises a number of challenges because what now hap has to happen is that to fund green growth, um, well, the, the only way that justice can really be obtained is to uh, ensure that a lot of money is being uh, funneled to fund green growth. But again, as I think Ida Robin or Maxine has said, a lot of what is coming as part of green growth is really not uh, additional. It's part of the existing ODA. A lot of the pledges are not being kept. And we also see that um, uh, 
For example, in Africa, 18 billion pledged, only 1.6 billion deposited, and actually 379 million uh, is what is going to developing country. So uh, my time is up, um, but I think the big point I'm making is that equity has now been kind of rolled back in the context of this new polycentric governance to uh, within implication of lack of transparency, lack of accountability, and also potent danger for the effectiveness of the regime. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chucks. Our next speaker is uh, John Barnett from the University of Melbourne. John's a political geographer whose research investigates social impacts and responses to environmental change. His research has helped explain the impacts of climate change on cultures, food, security, migration, water security, and peace. He focuses particularly on adaptation solutions that contribute to social justice and peace. He's conducted fieldwork field in several Pacific Island countries and in Australia, China, and Timor-Leste. And John is a lead author for the most recent IPCC assessment report and co-edits the Journal of uh, Global Environmental Change. So welcome, John. Thanks, Rosemary, and um, thanks, David, for organising this conference. I remember well the first conference in 1997, and it's great uh, that we have a follow-up. So I'm going to talk about something completely different, although I would love to have a conversation about migration in the Pacific, but I won't. Um, I want to talk about political economy, markets, adaptation in Australia. And I think that we are starting to see some very interesting developments in the way markets are responding to climate change, and I think we're starting to see some interesting social justice outcomes of that. We are seeing markets emerge for the purposes of adaptation, and we might argue the point, but I think the southern Murray-Darling Basin water market is an example of that. And we're seeing the way markets are responding to the idea of climate change, and the coal market and electricity market is an obvious one. But I think we're seeing some interesting things emerge in insurance markets, and I'm going to talk about these things. I'm talking about markets here uh, as an economic sociologist might as instruments of policy, uh, as structured forms of exchange. And we know that, that they're preferred instruments of policy implementation um, because we believe that they're more efficient, though that's obviously debatable. I don't think we thought very much about the way markets respond to climate change. We very much focus on the state. We very much focus on the state as a regulator or not of, of emissions reductions. We're not so sure about the role of the state in terms of adaptation, which I think is largely a public goods problem. And we haven't thought much about markets at all in terms of adaptation. This is all contentious, uh, but it's good to start the conversation about this, I think, and that's what I want to try and do. So let me talk about three markets. First, energy markets. We know that coal is dead for a range of reasons, one of which is technological innovation, social practices. We have a million households with solar panels, and that's great. And actually, it's a very interesting turn. If you read people like Tony Pat basically say... The Commons framing probably didn't really help us get very far with reducing emissions, but technological innovation and harnessing technology with consumption has really driven the revolution in energy. So markets actually have been a reasonably powerful dynamic for decarbonisation. It's a logic of accumulation, and it's very interesting. There are some social justice implications of this change, though. So we have these rural communities 
in Hunter Valley, in the Latrobe Valley, in Port Augusta, who were put there to mine coal and produce electricity as part of a nation-building state. Those people there, they are the descendants of people who were created in these locations, made very heavily dependent on these economies for the purposes of building this country. And they've been left behind. Demand is declining. Governments have been very slow and reluctant to assist those people to transition and to assist their economies to transition. And really, it looks like a political spin rather than a genuine effort to assist those communities with economic restructuring. They're being left behind, and that seems unjust. We had this other interesting paradox emerging where households that rent and low-income households who don't benefit from investing in renewable energy don't benefit from solar panels and solar power rebates. They may be increasingly left to pay for the cost of maintaining a grid that fewer and fewer people are participating in because they're getting their solar panels and their batteries and withdrawing. So the cost of grid maintenance is going to fall on a smaller number of households who are those least able to benefit from the efficiency gains and those who are most vulnerable. So what do we take from this particular form of market response for, for, for adaptation and social justice? Well, if the, if the renewable energy revolution is any implication, there may be scope for innovation and new technologies for adaptation. It's interesting to think about. What are the gadgets? What are the things that will generate new economies that help us adapt? Is it CFC-free or solar-powered air conditioning? Is it demountable houses? What is it? Um, housing design and those kind of things. But this too may affect a shift in the locations of production. There will be some social costs and adjustment as some forms of industries rise and fall. Climate change is a structurally driving form in our economy and it's going to have the same socially driving effects. And the benefits of those innovations for adaptation will accrue to those people who can invest, who can capitalise, and they won't accrue to those people who probably most need to be the recipients of those technologies. It's interesting things to think about. Air conditioners in rental homes is another example. So let me talk to another, uh, another market, the Southern Murray-Darling Basin market, which is probably now the most mature market for non-urban water in the world. And it's a vast amount of very interesting literature about, about the creation of this market, and it, it is much debated, and you only need to read the papers for a week to see it is unfinished business. But it required, and the critical difference between the first iterations of the Basin Plan and farmers burning the Basin Plan and the successful implementation of the Basin Plan was taking the state property right to water and handing that to farmers. Farmers got billion, billion, billion dollar creation of an asset overnight. They got a property right to water. And that enabled them to begin to trade in the market. It's been very successful in many ways. There's been a shift of water from lower to higher value uses. There's significant evidence of on-farm innovation and efficiency gains. Farmers have greater flexibility to manage water-related risk to their businesses, though, that, though business management becomes very complex when you have to market your commodity as well as think about the market for your input of water. And, and it's enabled farm exits. So a number of farmers who had been unable to exit farming have been able to sell their water entitlements and use that to cash up and move out. It has certainly increased environmental flows because the Commonwealth is a major holder of water rights. They have purchased water rights and they use those to make environmental flows. So let's be clear here that the, that the Commonwealth has enabled increased environmental flows in the basin, not so much through regulation, but by acting as an actor in the water market. The Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder is the largest holder of water in the Murray-Darling Basin. It holds a property right that it can buy and sell. It's very interesting. 
there are some social impl justice implications of this change, and this is, the, this is why Barnaby Joyce doesn't like the Basin Plan and he wants to unpick it, and this is why it's okay for the New South Wales and Queensland and Victorian governments to kind of not really implement the Basin Plan, because many rural communities feel that they are being left behind as well. You commodify water, it flows to capital, it doesn't flow to social goods. So we're seeing problems where collective irrigation infrastructure is becoming increasingly hard to maintain because the farmers who contributed to the maintenance of that collective good, many of them have left, and so the cost of maintaining the infrastructure falls on a smaller number of farmers. Farmers who are selling out their entitlements are exiting rural communities, and this is hastening rural decline, which then hastens problem about service delivery, uh, keeping the schools open, and so on. We're seeing potentially some very interesting forms of the rise of agribusiness. So, uh, there's some literature around Loxton in South Australia where firms are coming in, they're purchasing land separate from water, they're purchasing water at the optimum time and they're importing labour and they're reconstituting manufacturing in a very large-scale fortis mode of production. Carrots you eat come off one or two farms. And this is displacing local farms, it's displacing local workers, it's creating some tension in those communities as well. And so other values of water are being excluded by design as well. They can only be secured through the market relative to the purchasing power of irrigators. So property rights, once they're established, are hard to reverse. And if property rights can't be reversed, then the scope to allocate water for indigenous water values, for environmental values in an era with declining runoff due to climate change, or for community values, is completely limited. It is only possible through the market. Very difficult now for the state to regulate water because it's in a market structure. Efficiency is unrelated to fairness, and the water market is fair, is efficient, but it is not fair. Water markets value water for its productive use, water flows to capital, it doesn't value water for its cultural uses or environmental uses or anything else. So we're in a really different future now in the Murray-Darling Basin. So efficiency can contribute to adaptation in so far, to a certain degree, and that's good, but it's only going to get us so far, and after that, we're going to need to plan, we're going to need to regulate, we're going to have to make significant trade-offs in the sector allocation of water between irrigation and environmental values or between rural community X and indigenous community Y. But our capacity to do that now has been significantly eroded by turning the allocation of water over to a market structure. And we're not going to be turning that back. Third example of a market, insurance markets. Um, we talked about uninsurable risks and uninsurable subjects, and I think we had a critical moment in the Lockyer Valley of floods in this country where after Roma was flooded, the major insurers said, we're not going to insure any household in Roma anymore, unless you build a levy bank around the town. So the Queensland government had no choice. They came in, they built a levy bank around the town. So insurers are starting to say, we might just not insure people in this country anymore, and the state is having to come in and build a form of infrastructure that is probably maladaptive to ensure that those subjects remain insurable. This, I think, is the very thin edge of what's going to be a very long and sharp wedge. It suggests insurers will not insure some people in places exposed to higher risk, and we know the risks are growing. And we know that most of the people living in the really high-risk locations, particularly flood locations, are some of the least well-advantaged members of our society. Governments may be induced to underwrite premiums, or pay for engineering works as flood levies or seawalls, um, or to engage in some quasi-state private market structure arrangements, as happens in the US, or to raise generalised flood insurance levies. The insurance market will change. 
and the game, I think, is going to change. And all of this will lead to social divides between people who have insurance and people who do not, uh, people who can recover from disasters and people who cannot. So we need to watch these markets very carefully, and I think this is a very large empirical research subject for anybody who's very interested. So what are my conclusions here? It's not just climate change per se that threatens to increase inequality in Australian society, it's the way institutions like markets respond to climate change, the way they see risk, the way they see opportunities, the way they work back onto regulators and the ability of the estate to regulate that to maintain social justice and to protect public goods into the future is going to be complicated, not just because the environment is changing, but because all sorts of market actors are changing in all sorts of ways. So we have communities whose economies depend on coal mining, and coal-fired power, who are also exposed to higher bushfire risk, who are losing their jobs and who may be uninsurable into the future. What about them? We have farmers on soldier-settler schemes all around this country where the agroclimatic zones in which they're farming are changing, where they can no longer purchase water because they don't have enough purchasing power in the market. Um, what about them? So, I don't think we're going to solve this problem. I think this is an unfolding issue about the way institutions respond to the idea and the risks and opportunities of climate change. I don't, I'm not an anti-market advocate here, but I am going to suggest, I think, that to be work fairly and to move into the future, we're going to need something like a Pollyannian counter-movement where the state suddenly takes markets much more seriously and where there's a lot more social regulation and public regulation of the actions of markets if we're to maintain some degree of fairness and prosperity into the future. Thanks.